almost exactly a year ago, I had a heart attack out of the blue. I wasn't someone that people were saying I was a candidate for that. Obviously, I survived. It's a little damage. So this has been a year unlike any other for me. One thing that really strikes me is that you were really athletic. You're trim, you were active, you've, you run a business, maybe a little type A, but you were a runner too, if I remember correctly, or maybe you still are. I was a runner, but truth be told, I had gone through a pretty stressful four years or so, and I had, as they say, let myself go. I was doing some pretty intense caretaking, still running my business, there was trauma involved with the caretaking. There was just so much to do that I put my own self-care on the back burner. I am a high energy person. Type A is probably a good description. So, you know, long hours, doing lots of stuff. I own a bookstore. That can be a very physical job. But yes, I'm the person someone looks at and says, you You had a heart attack? I don't understand. That's Chris Kleindienst, owner of Left Bank Books in St. Louis. A year ago, she joined the ranks of women living with heart disease. She found out that she had had a heart attack and that one of her coronary arteries, the vessels that supply oxygen to the heart muscle itself, one of those arteries was completely blocked. So they placed a stent, a wire mesh that helps keep a narrowed blood vessel open for business. Then came rehab and the task of making changes in her life. We'll hear more from Chris Kleindienst throughout the show today, and we'll also be hearing from Dr. Lori Tam, a cardiologist at the Providence Heart Clinic, St. Vincent, in Portland, Oregon. I'm Sean Collins, and this is the Hear Me Now podcast. Today, a woman's heart, understanding heart disease in women. Here's Dr. Tam. Over the years, the whole medical field really hasn't thought of heart disease as a as a woman's disease until kind of in more recent years. And I think only now are we being more aggressive with management, um, education, and prevention. You know, there are a lot of women that I take care of who said, well, you know, the doctors have mentioned that maybe my cholesterol has been a little bit high, but they just tell me, lose some weight, work on your diet, we'll check it again, you know. And But nobody actually jumps the gun and puts them on a cholesterol medicine when it's been high for 10 years. At what point do you say, you know, do we just start something? Do we need to treat mm-hmm. it rather than just talk about it, right? So I think that in recent years with these, um, you know, increased awareness campaigns about heart disease and women and how women are just as as likely to have heart disease and sometimes more so in certain cases, um, these are symptoms that we need to be aware of and um, and also be empowered to, to ask our doctors about what our risks are, how we, what we can do to really change our risk and reduce our risk. Right. The numbers are really alarming, I think, for a lot of lay people to think that is it one in three women in the U.S. dies from heart disease? It's true. You know, one in 31 women die from breast cancer. One in three die from heart disease. So heart disease is is certainly a, a very big public health issue and one that can be 
preventable about 80% of the time. You know, heart disease, there are certain things you can't prevent. There are genetic factors, there are certain inherited conditions, but many of the things that drive heart disease um, that we can control are lifestyle measures and it, it we can decrease our risk by changing how we exercise, what we do, how we eat, um, and the things that we do in our life to kind of work towards living a heart healthy life. So it is um, astounding. And you know, the other the number to keep in mind is that um, one in two women will die from either heart attack or stroke. So that's half of us, you know, when I am in a room, um, kind of talking to, to women about this issue, and have them ask them to look right, look left, half of them are not going to be there um, sometime in the future, because half of them will die from heart disease or stroke one or the other. You know, we the popular understanding is that that women often have different symptoms than men uh, when they have heart disease. Can you sort of give us a thumbnail idea of what the differences are between the way Mm -hmm. heart disease presents in men versus women or women versus men? Well, I think for the longest time, women's symptoms were often under-recognized because not every woman has chest pain, you know, and um, chest discomfort, chest pain is still the number one symptom that women have when they present with a heart attack. But there's also a myriad of other symptoms that could kind of be their sign that they're having a heart attack. Um, For example, some women will say they have significant shortness of breath with exertion. Some women will say that they have this sense of of doom, you know, they just don't feel well, they're nauseous, they're sweaty. Um, sometimes they describe their, they don't use the word chest pain when they're having chest discomfort. They often will say it's a pressure or a tightness um, or a heaviness or a burning. So, you know, when you start using those other terms, the doctor will say, well, are you having chest pain? They'll say no. But, you know, but it's actually, if you if you talk to them a little bit more and, and take their history, they'll say, yeah, I have this pressure, this heaviness. I feel like there's an elephant sitting on my chest. Or sometimes it's a little lower. It's in the epigastric region, which is right below the chest in the upper abdomen. And sometimes um, I've had women that sit all night at home taking Tums and a whole bottle of Tums later, they're like, I'm still having, you know, this discomfort. I'm sweaty. Um, I'm nauseous. And then they finally show up to the emergency room. But that's after a whole night um, of essentially heart muscle damage, because in cardiology, we talk about time is myocardium. Myocardium is the medical word for heart muscle. And if you go for an extended period of time without blood flow, adequate blood flow to your heart muscle, guess what? That muscle dies. And, um, you know, a heart muscle that's that's damaged like that often will result in permanent heart failure down the road or a much higher risk of arrhythmias that can result in cardiac arrest where your heart just stops. So, um, you know, I think because the symptoms can masquerade as other things, sometimes people don't recognize that maybe the symptoms they're having are due to a heart attack. There's been um, studies that have done been done over the years that look at you know how long it takes for a woman to present to a first medical attention from the onset of heart attack symptoms. It's hours and hours after a man would present. So sometimes because we don't recognize it, sometimes it's because we're we don't believe it. You know we don't think that we're at risk. Or, uh, but I think that because of that delay in seeking medical care, um, sometimes the outcomes are much worse for women when they have a heart attack. Well, the the old story about men used to be that the first symptom of a heart attack was denial. Yes. That <laughs> it does seem to be common yes. to both men and women that there's a, a willingness to sort of discount what, what you're feeling. Oh, absolutely. 
I think it's easy to kind of explain away a lot of things, um, and especially when we don't want to believe that something as serious as a heart attack is happening to us. But I think it just illustrates the importance of being really proactive, being your best own personal best advocate. You know, I think that if things don't feel right and it's it's okay to go to the emergency room and if it's a false alarm, that's okay. But um, an unrecognized heart attack can have consequences that are much far reaching and uh, much more serious. So I think that uh, it's important to be aware of those symptoms and um, to think that, you know, it's okay if it's a false alarm, I don't have to be embarrassed by that. I think a lot of women are caregivers. We take care of our families um, and, um, and we sometimes put our own needs and our own kind of issues last. But I think at the end of the day, you're not going to be around to take care of them if you're not around. So I think that uh, more reason to be uh, aware, to be um, uh, proactive, and to really pay attention to how you feel. Your colleagues who are um, primary care physicians already are taxed with lots to do in a 15-minute encounter with a patient. Should there be a rethinking of what the screening mechanism is for looking out for symptoms of heart disease? You know, I think it really comes down to, um, uh, despite all the um, the pressures in um, primary care, and it's a lot of pressures, I have all the respect for my primary care colleagues, I think it's still um, important when we do have interactions with our patients to take some time to understand their cardiovascular risks, because um, heart disease is the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. You know, the majority of us will die from heart disease. If you don't die from something else, you die from heart disease. Um, and um, um, uh, that risk goes up as we age, and uh, it is a modifiable, you know, disease process. Meaning it it can it can um, be affected. The impact of what we do can really change the trajectory in a number of cases. Mm. So um, it's important to know your numbers. You know, to when you see um, your doctor, to know kind of the key indicators in terms of your risk for cardiovascular disease. So know what your blood pressure is and what a healthy number should be. Know what your blood sugars are. Know what your cholesterol numbers are. Know what a healthy body weight is for you, because those are really key indicators that can affect and help us understand our risk. And then in addition to targeting, kind of getting these patients to the goals that they need to be, sometimes there are other things that are important, you know, taking a good family history. If there's a number of people who've had premature heart disease in their lives, um, that may be a reason to be a more aggressive with screening. You know, there's a test called a coronary calcium scan that we're doing a lot more these days, especially in patients who've, uh, are at least moderate risk for heart disease based on cholesterol numbers and age um, or have had a family history of premature heart disease, um, we'll do a coronary calcium scan on a number of these patients, even if they're not symptomatic. And we're looking for essentially silent calcified plaque buildup. Calcified hmm. coronary calcium is a corollary for calcified atherosclerosis and plaque. Sometimes I've got, you know, healthy people that come and see me and they're like, well, I'm 45. I'm a marathon runner. I eat real well. Um, but my dad had a heart attack at like, 47. So what should I do? You know, so I run a coronary calcium score sometimes in these people and they come back at, you know, really, really high scores that there's already a lot of silent plaque buildup that we're just not aware of. And once you're empowered with that knowledge, you know that, gosh, this person probably needs to be on a cholesterol medication, a statin at this point to prevent further plaque progression. So you, you know, there are tools now that we have at our um, disposal to kind of try to stratify risk earlier. And in the appropriate patient, that might be a good test to do. So I think that I'm seeing our primary care uh, colleagues using that test increasingly more to try to identify who really needs to be on these aggressive prevention medicines, maybe at an earlier stage. Hmm. 
How is that test performed? It's a CAT scan. It takes about three minutes, three to five minutes. It's done in radiology. And it's essentially just a CT scan of the chest. And it looks at specifically how much coronary calcium or calcification or hardened, a corollary for hardened atherosclerosis or plaque in the arteries of the heart. So it's quick, easy to do. Um, there's a little bit of radiation. It's, it's still relatively low compared to uh, CT scans that involve um, contrast dye. Um, but it's a one-time scan that we do to kind of assess your risk. Not everybody needs it, but in num people who've had high cholesterol numbers for a long time, where they are trying to decide whether we should treat them or not, sometimes it's very helpful. Because if your score comes back at zero, well, the likelihood of a major heart attack in the next five years is really low. You really have no significant calcified coronary calcified plaque in your arteries. But if the score is really high, then obviously there's already some silent you know, calcified plaque formation in the arteries. You mentioned that you own a bookstore. It's called Left Bank Books. Yes. And the reason I bring that up is you had a trip to Paris mm -hmm. um, a little over a year ago. Tell me about that. So that's the that's the long story of my heart attack. I um, had been hoping to take that trip the two years before. COVID time is very confusing. The, the week of the lockdown was my first planned time that I was going to go for my first trip to Paris to see, for example, the left bank and visit all the places associated with all of the people um, that I think of. All the expat writers. And exactly. All the expat writers, even some of the French ones, um, the lesbian ones, the, you know, Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas and, Sylvia Beach with her iconic bookstore, Shakespeare and Company. This was, you know, a bucket list trip for me. I was really pushing it to get everything buttoned up before I left. And a friend of mine happened to have a schedule that coincided with mine. And we flew together, which turned out to be really good. Got off the plane in the Charles de Gaulle airport and immediately had what I call an episode something that had never happened before. I got like this weird nauseated feeling all over my body, not my stomach, but my body. Um, and I felt like some chills and dizziness. And I thought I was, I would faint or possibly worse. Uh, and then it passed. I was in the airport, but my friend was really concerned in the airport. Um, medical people came and they have their own little mini clinic there. And they took me there and did an EKG and said they didn't see anything, but um, they I should go get this checked out at an emergency room. So I my first thing of going to Paris was to take an ambulance to an emergency room. <laughs> um, not the kind of tourism I was hoping for. And <laughs> I spent the rest of the day there, mostly as you do in any hospital, sitting in a room by yourself. Uh, they wouldn't let my friend back. She speaks French because of COVID. Um, so it was a little difficult, the language barrier. In fact, it was impossible with all of the people I was actually seeing. They did an EKG, didn't find anything as far as I knew. I couldn't really tell for sure. I didn't know why they were continuing to keep me. This man just kind of came in and 
started rattling French at me and grabbing, disconnecting me to take me down the hall somewhere. And I didn't know where we were going or what we were doing. And somehow we managed to establish, I was not Swiss or German because he saw my name, that I was American. This was not a popular thing for him. Um, And I made a terrible mistake of, um, as he was whisking me down the hall to some doors with a testing lab name that I didn't know what it meant, um, saying, I, 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 you know, no, I can't do this. I'm American. I don't have insurance and or don't have French insurance. And I am certain that what he heard was, you stupid French man, I'm American, you know, do what I say or something. Right. So, because he just flipped into a very, um, like, oh, American. He actually said that several times. And he whipped me around the other way, took me down some other hallway, sort of telling and pointing at me to his friends as he went along, American, American. And I was just so sunk. I was like, the last thing I wanted to be was the ugly American. And so, it was the first thing The ugly I was. American with a French-speaking friend in the waiting room. Yes. <laughs> so um, eventually the doctor came. The doctor who had been directing my treatment, who I had not yet met and or even knew was involved, um, he was a lovely man and he spoke English and he explained, you know, what was going on eight hours in. Um, and I said, you know, I've been feeling fine ever since. I promise you, I will go see my doctor as soon as I go home. I just got here. You know, just landed. I want to see the left bank. <laughs> yeah, I want to see the left bank. Um, he was very nice about it, and he said, "Okay." But I got released with a prescription for antacids, uh, which I filled and dutifully tried to take. But what happened was, you know, of course you have jet lag, which I didn't know how to read. It would is my first trip that long, and um, I never felt like better, better. I never got enough energy to really enjoy being a tourist. I um, actually started having more episodes Mm -hmm. and they started being sort of worse and and gradually happening more often. Mm -hmm. And at one point I did call my stateside physician, but her firewall was so thick. And the woman who was that firewall, English was her second language. And I had to explain to her what Gaviscon was. And I just begged her, I just need like five minutes total. I really feel it would be helpful if I could talk to the doctor. Instead, what happened was the her pharmacist called back with another prescription for um, antacids. And I just thought, well, I know this is not that, but I don't know what it is. And... Um, you must have been terrified. I was a little, yes. Did you think it was your heart? I was, I think in the back of my mind, I knew it could be, but I kept thinking it's, um, maybe it's a hernia. Maybe, who, you know, I just couldn't, anything but that. I went straight to bed when I got home. I thought, well, stress, you know, I'll just sleep in my own bed. I'll be fine. No. By 3.30 in the morning, I felt so much worse. Now my jaw was clenching up. My 
teeth were chattering uncontrollably. It's like, okay, this is not okay. And anyone who knows me would say, call 911. Instead, I called first my son who didn't pick up his phone, which is typical. And then I called my friend next door. It was 3.30 in the morning. She answered her phone. I said, Lori, can you take me to the emergency room? She's like, sure. I was on a table right away. (laughs) The way I tell the story is like six women in blue scrubs suddenly were all over me, you know, ripping off my clothes and sticking me with EKG plugs. And it was kind of exciting. And then the, um, the doctor there, she said, you're having a heart attack. And then they just went into overdrive and started a different kind of prep. And, and the cardiologist came uh, on call, you know, not at the hospital, seemingly immediately. And he just, they whisked me down to the surgery room. And I'm like telling Lori as we're going, like where to find my will and what to tell my son if I didn't make it. Uh, yeah. That early morning a year ago, Chris Kleindienst had a blocked artery opened. There is another type of heart attack that's not caused by cholesterol blockage in an artery. Those are called MONOCA. So MONOCA stands for myocardial infarction in the absence of obstructive coronary artery disease. So these are types of heart attacks that um, occur when there's no severe blockage in the arteries of the heart. It's not due to um, you know, typical atherosclerotic plaque. And um, many of these are more common in women, but they can happen in men too. But it's a whole new category of a different category of heart attacks. So um, the risk factors often are different. So for example, um, there's a type of heart attack called um, a spontaneous coronary artery dissection or SCAD, where it's not due to plaque buildup, but it's due to a tear in the inner lining of the blood vessels. And this tear uh, can occur more commonly in women, maybe because of estrogen and hormonal reasons. Um, it also happens more commonly in pregnant women or, recent, or women who've recently delivered because the estrogen levels in their system are higher. We presume that this makes their blood vessels more fragile and um, they're more prone to tears and dissections. And when there's a dissection in the artery, you can form a collection of blood that essentially kind of stops off, that cuts off the blood flow and it acts, looks, and it is a heart attack, but it's not from a blockage. It's not from a cholesterol blockage. So mm-hmm. usually stenting is not what we would prefer to do. This, these often happen in younger women or in people who are really doing really strong strenuous exercise. Sometimes they have some underlying vascular abnormality, something called fibromuscular dysplasia that puts them at higher risk. Um, but these are people you don't usually expect to have heart attacks. Um, there's another type of heart attack called broken heart syndrome in the layman uh, kind of uh, uh, media, but it's it's uh, called stress cardiomyopathy, where some really stressful um, event actually triggers a response where the heart gets really stunned. It's like a rush of adrenaline to the heart. The heart can't handle that um, massive stressor, and um, you will have a heart attack. Um, that is due to a stunned heart. And sometimes it's due to something that is um, a horrible event. You know, I've had women, uh, one woman whose uh, college age son had just drowned in the school swimming pool. She got mm. the news. And, you know, within 10 minutes started getting severe chest pain mm. and, um, you know, had to come into the hospital. And her cardiac enzymes, troponins were way up. 
she had abnormalities on the EKG, but we did an angiogram. Her angiogram was clean. There was no blockages, but she had some characteristic findings on the echocardiogram, the ultrasound that showed that portion of the heart wasn't moving, and it was very classic for stress cardiomyopathy. Um, luckily, most people with stress cardiomyopathy recover with medications and some time, and the heart function usually returns to normal, but you can get real sick for a while there until the heart returns to normal. Um, there's another type of uh, heart attack called microvascular disease that sometimes can cause heart attacks, not commonly, but these are not the big arteries that get plugged up. It's the little micro vessels that you cannot see. And those arteries can spasm, they can narrow down, they can cause you chest pain when you exert yourself. And then there's um, an actual condition called coronary artery vasospasm, where the arteries that feed your heart, there's no cholesterol buildup in them, but once in a while, just like a muscle, they'll, they'll spasm down. And the inner lining of our blood vessels actually have a, um, a smooth, a layer of smooth muscle. Right. So the muscle can spasm, just like any you know muscle anywhere. If it spasms and cuts off blood flow, well, it acts, looks, and it is a heart attack. But most of the time, certain medicines like nitroglycerin and other things allows this muscle to kind of relax, or sometimes time alone will allow it to relax and open up. So um, you know, people can have heart attacks and not have a cholesterol plaque. We have to treat them differently. We have to recognize it, and we have to put them on the appropriate medicines to prevent that from happening. So a, a woman who hears those five or six types of heart attacks that are yeah. not due to cholesterol buildup, how is she supposed to process that information? Like, how do you screen for that? How do you mm -hmm. pay attention to your own symptoms to be informed about what could be happening to you? So, you know, many of these things, there's really no, for these, you know, non-obstructive plaque-related heart attacks, Minoka heart attacks, there's not a screening test. It's not like I can check your cholesterol or do a coronary calcium scan and it's going to be abnormal because most of the time in these patients, they're normal. You know, but I think the, because they're overall still rare causes of heart attacks, um, it's just important to be aware of what signs and symptoms of a potential heart attack are so that if they do happen to you, you're taking it seriously, you're seeking medical attention, you're getting your cardiac enzymes checked and an EKG checked, because um, those are the things that can tell us whether there really is um, a heart attack that's occurring or, or, or potentially occurring at that time. Um, I think that if a woman is getting exertional symptoms, especially like activity gives you more chest tightness, pain, pressure, shortness of breath. Those are symptoms we should pay attention to. You know, people will say, gosh, when I walk up the stairs, I'm starting to get this heaviness or this pressure. Hmm. Sometimes it radiates to other areas, you know. So um, I've had women that come in with jaw pain or they go to their dentist because they've got jaw pain. And the dentist looks and says, there's nothing wrong with your teeth. But then if you see, talk to them and ask them, well, when do you get jaw pain? She's like, well, yeah, when I'm on the treadmill. You know, um, so that's probably just referred pain from a cardiac issue, or maybe it's in the left arm. That's another common place that people will feel it. The nerves in the body crosstalk with one another. Yeah. Heart pain can be felt in different areas. So I think that if you're getting exertional symptoms, whether it's severe shortness of breath, chest discomfort, um, if that's not normal for you, then you, you need to go ahead and have it checked out. Because really, until we've done the appropriate tests, we don't know that it's not your heart. Can you talk to us about hormone replacement therapy? What sort of issues should women pay attention to at menopause or, or frankly, with birth control as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really in any stage of their, our lives, really. So, you know, our natural estrogen is protective. Yeah, you know, women um, 
don't have as high of a risk for heart disease until after menopause. And we tend to get heart disease, you know, on average about 10 years later than the average man if all the other risk factors are the same, because we have the natural protective effects of our natural estrogen until we start to lose it. So after menopause, you'll see that a woman's cholesterol numbers tend to go up. Um, you'll see that their heart disease risk starts to go up more after menopause. Not that premenopausal women don't get heart attacks. We still can, but it's more, more rare and your heart disease risk goes up with age. Um, and um, so natural estrogen, your own estrogen is protective until you start to lose it. But there are things like um, uh, birth control pills, which have um, you know a significant supernatural amount of estrogen. That's how it kind of suppresses your ovaries into not ovulating. Um, you know, birth control pills increase your risk of blood clots and strokes. Um, women who smoke and who are older than 35, we know that their blood clot risk and stroke risk is much higher on birth control pills. So we just need to be aware of that and um, know that there are certain patients that may not be um, appropriate candidates for it. We know that um, women who've had a prior pregnancy complications such as preeclampsia, where the blood pressures go really high, mm -hmm. um, gestational hypertension, gestational diabetes, um, uh, those women are more prone to heart disease and their risk of heart disease and stroke are probably at least two times higher later in their lives just because they've had that problem earlier in their life. Um, there's probably, it identifies women that probably are um, have you know certain and underlying vascular issues and things that may put them at higher risk later on. We know that hormone replacement therapy um, in early kind of uh, younger women that are just going through menopause, it's fine. You know, I think it's fine for symptom management. Uh, people do okay, but in older women, especially women older than age 65, um, long-term chronic hormone replacement therapy, being on estrogen um, for more than five years at that point, if you're older than 65 and you've been on for more than five years, your risk of stroke and heart attack go up, as well as your risk of breast cancer. So I think it's important for women to know that, yes, early in menopause, if you need some estrogen to help kind of get you through the perimenopausal symptoms, it's acceptable. But as you get much older, um, we need to try to wean you off because um, physiologically, that's not what your body would be doing anyway. You know, we make less and less estrogen as we get older. That's a normal thing that happens. And if you try to give um, patients extended periods of time with estrogen as they're older, you start running into the plaque issue. You start running into um, stroke risk and breast cancer risk. And that's probably not worth it for most of our patients. Mm -hmm. Is the um, process of rehab after an MI different for women than, than for men? You know, we put them through the same cardiac rehab program. And it's, uh, for most patients, it's covered by insurance. It's a monitored, medically monitored exercise program. Um, after a heart attack, we put heart monitors on you, EKG leads, and we gradually exercise you under the supervision of an exercise physiologist and a nurse. And we make sure that you can increase your level of exercise safely um, and also kind of reach a, a level of reconditioning that is going to be helpful for maintaining heart health later. Later on. So I think that the process of rehab very much is similar for both groups, but we want you to gradually work up to it. We want to make sure you're doing it in a safe way. And we monitor your hearts and your heart rhythm to make sure there's no concerning arrhythmias or problems that we see during the rehab. Are you aware of any um, two cardiologist families trying to make lifestyle changes, living with a partner who's, who's yeah. doing the same thing? 
Yeah. You know, I have plenty of um, uh, patients who both have heart disease. And I will say that um, just like quitting smoking, you know, when one partner quits smoking, the other still smoking, it's almost a guarantee that the other partner isn't going to be able to succeed. Right. Because I think that because heart disease is very much a lifestyle um, disease in a number of cases, not the only thing, but a number of, of cases are or very much impacted by lifestyle. You both have to walk the same walk and talk the same talk. You know, so when I have even if I have one patient that has uh, a heart attack and I'm doing cardiac rehab with them, I'm sending them to a nutritionist to kind of um, get some education about what a heart healthy diet should be. I usually ask them, you know, who's the cook in the family? If it's your wife or if in the other case, sometimes if it's your husband, bring your partner along when you meet with a dietitian mm -hmm. because it needs to be something that you both can institute um, in a life that you need to live together. It's going to be better for the both of you in the long run. But yeah, these lifestyle things, um, they're, they're usually go hand in hand. You know, you have to both live that life. Yeah. I, you know, I bring it up a little bit because I, I was lucky in that first cardiology experience that I had. Um, the practice was really well integrated. There were nutritionists yes. there. There were psychologists that were part of the practice. The, there was a 12-week sort of education program that people with MIs would go through mm -hmm. that was part part group talk and part learning new sort of um, lifestyle changes, you know, it, yeah. it, they did a very good job yes. of empowering the patient to sort of think through changes. Mm -hmm. And one of them was, you know, this sort of alert about depression, mm -hmm. but it wasn't addressed to the patient. It was addressed to the spouse mm -hmm. saying, mm -hmm. look out for this, be, be on the lookout. And, I wonder what you, you know, sort of hearkening back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation about how women traditionally have this sort of caretaker role. Mm -hmm. um, who's, who's looking out for them? That's the thing that worries me is that mm -hmm. it, it seems more natural for women to look out for the male yes. partner who may have had heart disease, but is someone looking out for her? You would hope so. You know, I think that uh, um, uh, partnerships are partnerships because there's two right and and in that uh, in that relationship so you would hope so but i think it, it's true that women i think sometimes these issues aren't as um, readily apparent or recognized because they've been in a caregiver role maybe their spouse is just not attuned to and, and used to being in that role otherwise for her um although i will say you know i gotta give men some credit i've got a lot of male you know, a lot of um female patients who have you know wonderfully supportive husbands and spouses i've got elderly patients where you know they're both 90 and he's holding her hand walking her in because um she's unstable mm -hmm. you know and and she's he's the one that's making sure she comes in for her labs and gets her medicines right we don't choose kind of who's going to be the healthier one and what's going to happen to who you know these are the things that um come what may come with life and um but I do agree that, um, you know, I think it's uh, the family needs to be aware that these are things that can happen after a heart attack. Depression is a real thing. Um, and not just after a heart attack, really after any, any you know, major stressors or setback in one's life. Right. Um, the primary care doctor, sometimes if they, you know, know them well and you've had this long relationship with your doctor, they might be able to you know, ask some questions that kind of prod at how you're doing. Um, you know, I, I think that um, at the end of the day, though, we still have to be our own best advocate. If things don't feel right, um, if you need help, you know, I think it's it's also our, the patient uh, herself, her, her own responsibility 
also to speak up and, and ask for that help and hope that we can provide that to her. So I think that um, depression is uh, very common and much more common than we realize. And, you know, they've done many studies that have shown that people that are depressed, it actually impacts their heart health. You know, their risk of heart attacks and heart disease go up um, if depression is untreated. Yeah. Dr. Tim, you've had, um, you've given us so many wonderful, uh, insights into this and it, there are lots of moving parts and I'm, I'm trying to be an advocate here for the bewildered listener who's wondering, how do I, how do I keep all of this, mm-hmm. you know, straight? How do I, how do I look out for myself? What do you say to her? What do you say to the woman who feels a little bewildered by all the data that's coming at her. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, um, I think there's a few things it comes down to, right? So the uh, it's important to know what your risk factors are, what you can do to change them. So talk to your doctor when you do your annual visit with your primary care. It's easy to say, you know, like, yeah, you know, once I turn 40, I know that the, re- the recommendation is to get a mammogram. If you're after a certain age, you get colonoscopies. So, but I know that heart disease is, you know, the biggest killer of women in the U.S. So what are my, what are my risks for heart disease? Should we talk about how I can reduce my risk? Are there any tests that I need to do that would be appropriate to assess my risk? So I think that's a, a time mm-hmm. when you do your annual physical, when you really should talk about that um, with your primary care doctor. That's an opportunity to address those things. And then secondly, I think it's being aware of symptoms and what to be aware of. And if um, you have any of these symptoms of concern, take it seriously. Talk to your doctor about it. If these symptoms are acute and definitely getting worse, um, you know, go into the emergency room, get your EKG, get your cardiac enzymes, and get it evaluated because you don't want to sit on it for too long because sometimes it may be irreversible um, if you wait too long. Uh, And then I think that, you know, there are some key lifestyle choices I think are important for everybody to try to maintain, right? So current recommendations for the American Heart Association is that we do moderate levels of exercise um, about at least 150 minutes a week. So that's 30 minutes on average, five days a week. If you do longer sessions, you can do fewer days, but you should try to reach for that. That's a, that's an attainable goal, you know, and, and it may be just like walking the family dog after dinner or um, getting an exercise bike and, you know, hopping on at the end of the night, you know, I, during the, when the pandemic started, when my kids went to bed, I got a cheapo exercise bike off of Amazon and I watched the news and did my 30 minutes or 45 minutes, right? Because it was just, you know, a way to kind of mindlessly do something that was keeping me active um, while I was doing something else anyway. I was watching the news, for example. So I think we need to find what works for us. We have to find the active things that keep us healthy that we enjoy doing. You know, sometimes it's doing a yoga class or a bar class with the other moms in the class. Or um, if you like, you know, fishing and hiking and all those other things, we want you to do those things. We want you to be active, but find things that are enjoyable to you so you're more likely to maintain it. Um, and then, um, you know, for most of us eating a Mediterranean type diet, we feel like we'll reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease. And a Mediterranean diet includes healthy fats like olive oil and fish and nuts and avocados. Those are the good fats. They raise the good cholesterol, help you clear the bad cholesterol. Eat less saturated fat, less dark meat, less red meat, less deep fried things, less processed things. Um, 
you know, um, uh, the uh, processed and packaged foods that we have in our American diet has so much saturated fat and so much sodium that mm -hmm. it will increase everybody's cardiovascular risk if we don't really pay attention to that. Um, and then, you know, sugar is really prevalent in our diet. And that's why there's the obesity issue is much more of an issue. People gain a lot of weight when they eat simple carbohydrates um, and sugar, you know, so the white bread, the white pasta, the refined um, uh, foods, you know, if you stick to brown rice instead of white rice, whole grain bread instead of white bread, you know, choosing the healthier options when we can and substituting those in our diet will make a big difference in the long run. I think these are steps that all of us um, can uh, can adopt and, and learn and just build into our lifestyles. I think it's the important thing is that, um, you know, for those that have children, they grow up kind of reflecting the things that you've taught them, you know, so mm -hmm. if they've grown up eating, um, uh, you know, only white Wonder Bread and um, processed foods, that's the kind of taste buds and the the things that they grow an affinity to, you know, but I think that if we adopt a heart healthy diet, if we educate and empower the women um, with um, the tools to live a heart healthy life, you're not just going to improve her health, you're going to improve the health of her family, her community and everyone around her. What a, what a good point. Dr. Lori Tam, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, thank you, Sean. It was a pleasure, pleasure talking to you. Dr. Lori Tam, cardiologist at Providence Heart Clinic, St. Vincent in Portland, Oregon. Back to St. Louis now and to my conversation with Chris Kleindienst. Chris, um, it's been a year. You're an awfully thoughtful person, a good writer. I'm curious what you're thinking a year into your cardiac recovery. Well, I'm thinking a couple things. Um, as to how I got to that place where I actually had the heart attack, I think the cause, as it were, was a badly broken heart. And that's very spiritual and emotional and social, you know, and the medical or biological things that were going on were being fueled by this just huge emotional, spiritual breakdown I was in the midst of. And it was a very long, slow one. And, and this was like, I wasn't caretaking anymore. I was um, a couple years past it, but only about six months out of having daily contact with the person I was taking care of. Uh, you know, my ex, and he had moved on, and um, we were finally not running a business together. That was not healthy. That was not healthy, but COVID forced it on us um, at a very bad time. So the heart attack for me, you know, that first day in cardiac rehab, like in my bed, I wasn't there very, just a couple days, but um, all I did was, of course, come to kind of try to come to grips with this. And I would agree that it is how I've found it has been a blessing in the long run because it forced me to take accounting of myself. It forced me to 
take care of myself. I mean, that's a choice. And I had been making a choice as to what I was doing all the years leading up, acting like I had no choice. And in fact, a lot of my life I spent that way. I think growing up in a family that had in a lot of crises in it early on, you know, an alcoholic in parent, really too, um, is pretty disruptive. And I just got, since I was about five, I was the little caretaker, the little problem solver, the little crisis dealer with her. And this was just a screeching, like, hit the wall, wake up call. I think that the slowing down I had to do, I absolutely had to do. I mean, I had months where I didn't make it through a day without an app. And um, I had to sort of manage the store radically part time and, and um, not be there while I was doing it. That really, it was a necessity, but it was a gift. I'm sensitive to you going through this without a caretaker at your side. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that had to be hard. You know, it was such an odd thing because the end of my marriage was so traumatic. And the caretaking that led up to it... Um, was so traumatic and I was already pretty depressed. <laughs> I, I was definitely depressed. And I, I, I feel like I had already kind of had like a breakdown two years before mm -hmm. and I spent a horrible time by myself in COVID, like COVID was like pretty much, the lockdown pretty much coincided with, um, I am now alone. I did not see this coming. I did not want this. Um, you know, I never imagined it. And I have no, nothing left for myself because I gave it all to him to keep him alive. And uh, I guess I'm, a pretty scrappy type A person because I was just, by God, I'm going to go to France. You know, I'm going to do something eventually here. And um, when I had the heart attack and during the recovery process of the first many months, I, like you, did not have that person. But what happened for me is that a few of my friends just wouldn't take no for an answer. I never knew how to ask for that kind of help. I never thought I could. I never thought actually um, I had friends who would do those things for me. And they did. They didn't even really, I got one person who lives in Pennsylvania just called me and she said, all right, who's making meals for you? I'm like, I'm okay, I got this. No, you don't. And she said, I'm going to put this, I'm going to make a thing. I'm going to put it on Facebook. 
you'll get to approve people. I will, I will screen them and they're going to sign up for meals because you can't do this. And she did. And they did. And I had like immediately a month of people coming out of the woodwork and cooking for me and, um, doing other things for me. And she told me, she said, it is rude not to accept help when people offer. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's because your name is Kleindienst and she knew that the German guilt would work. <laughs> <laughs> She's right. I'm, you know, a little bit, I'm a, a scrappy, hardworking peasant, right? <laughs> it's a kind of a peasant name. Um, and it was really a revelation and a learning process for me. And it was, I had, <laughs> I feel like I had no choice, but I feel like I also can't say that. I actually did choose to accept that help. Yeah. And it was the best thing I've ever done. It's such a peculiar part of our culture that um, all of us who sort of strive for self-reliance and strength and self-possession somehow naturally think that that means we have to do this stuff alone, not just that we're strong and have mm -hmm. a role to play that's unique to our life, but that we have to do it alone in some way for it to be authentically us. Um, so asking mm -hmm. for help seems like one of the hardest things that Americans are asked to do. Yeah. And it comes, you know, I feel like men are, by and large, the cruelty there is that they're supposed to be the tough person and emotions are still like not allowed at all. And, and women are supposed to take care of everyone else. And it um, leaves both, you know, and everyone in between is some, you know, version of that. But it just, it's so sad. It's really sad. Because you learn, you learn so much in that vulnerable place of accepting help. You yes. learn, you learn about friendship. You learn about where your limits are, like where, where your strengths are. Um, mm -hmm. You don't need help in, with everything. You need help with some things. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's so, it was sort of an experiment in self-discovery to accept that kind of help. <laughs> it is. It, it, I'm so grateful for it. You know, the first, that first month, I was too weak to really um, be anything but grateful. And, and, you know, as time wore on, I realized I'd always thought, oh, I have to pay this person back. Now I have to cook for them or I have to do something pretty much a tit for tat kind of construct. And um, as the year wore on and I just felt like my um, list of people I owed something to was getting longer made me uncomfortable. And then I realized it took me pretty much the whole year. Um, so this is a recent realization. I gave myself permission to understand and accept 
that when people show a kindness, it's it's not um, a bank loan. And people do acts of kindness that they are able to do and want to do. And the expectation is that they have helped the person, not that they will now, you know, be owed three meals and whatever. And that the best thing I can do is do my very best at taking care of myself and my health and to pay it forward. That the ways I can be kind in the world might not look like the ways they can be kind, but I can be kind. Yeah. And it's profoundly, I think it is profoundly the core of what makes us human. We need community, which was really challenged during COVID. And I think the very base, basic building block of community is kindness. We've used um, metaphors about the heart. Um, you mentioned broken heart earlier. And I, in the context of this sort of being kind and being open to offering people help and being open to receiving that help, I think about the the phrase that we use, like opening your heart to people. It's another one of those heart metaphors of of we we value that in principle, that openness of heart, but it's it can tax us. It's it's not necessarily easy, but it can become, as you say, a way of life that you having experienced this openness of heart from others that you might rededicate yourself to other ways that you can open yourself up to the world and how you experience it. Yes. Yes. Chris Kleindienst is the owner of Left Bank Books in St. Louis. My thanks again to Dr. Lori Tam, cardiologist at the Providence Heart Clinic St. Vincent in Portland, Oregon. If you want to do more reading about women and heart disease, we have some links for you. Visit our website at hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. It's produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff, Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolovska-Elliott, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks so much for listening. Be well. Mm-hmm.